The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. Hello and welcome to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine, and this is the second of our December 2011 editions. Don't forget, BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Our website is historyextra.com and you can follow us on twitter.com slash historyextra and facebook.com slash historyextra. Coming up this week, we have... The book is an experiment and when I started it, I did have, had no idea if it was really going to, to work. That was Peter England, author of a new book on the First World War. He believes that the complexity of the world could only be explained by an intelligent designer. And that was Professor Michael Hunter on the 17th century scientist Robert Boyle. Our first interview this week is with Peter Englund, a Swedish historian and author who is also permanent secretary of the organisation that awards the Nobel Prize for Literature. Peter's book, The Beauty and the Sorry, has just been translated into English. It tells the history of the First World War through the stories of 20 different people who experienced that conflict. Our deputy editor, Rob Attar, caught up with Peter on a recent trip to the UK to find out more. I'm interested in the title of your book. What would you say was the inspiration behind that? Uh, the Beauty and the Sorrow. It's, it's in, in, in Swedish, it's, it's more complex. And it's a beauty and the sorrow of struggle. Uh, and it's a, sort of trying to capture something that is very apparent in, in if you read many of, of the, the uh, memoirs and the, and the journals and the, and the diaries and the letters that come out at the time, that many people, mind you not all, but many people, especially in the beginning, are very, very attracted to the war. Uh, and they really want to participate in it. And, and beauty, beauty and the sorrow, the beauty stands for all these elements that makes men, and not just men, people. Mm. Both women and men want to participate and uh, do so gladly. So, so it's, it's uh, the beauty is all these, it's not just beauty in an aesthetical sense, right. but because there of course is, there is a sort of aesthetical side to war, uh, but it's, it's beauty in a, it stands for all these factors that want, makes men want to, to join in enthusiastically. And you, you've taken, the approach for your book is very different from most history books, because you've taken the individual stories of a group of people who weren't necessarily the most important people. No, 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 uh, quite the contrary. I, yeah. I, I've chosen infra-ordinary people. Mm. And so what made you decide to 
use that approach for your book? Well, the, the book is an experiment in history writing. Um, and uh, I wanted to see if, if we do it the other way around, that we don't build a, a history book on a, this a, a great and important event, doesn't, we don't build it in the, in the usual manner with a grand narrative, and also in the usual manner use individuals as just examples. Uh, what if we sort of turn the tables and try, if we only take the individuals, only take the individual experiences, interlace them with each other, will we still get something of a picture of the event that they participate yeah. in? So the, the, the book is an experiment. And when I started it, I did have, had no idea if it was really going to, to work. So it was an experiment in, in, in several ways. It could have been a complete f sort of, with me ending up all that work and throwing it in the dustbin. That was one of the options. I did not know if the experiment would, it would give. And do you think this approach gives you a different insight into the period that you don't get from conventional history? Well, yes and no. I think it's also, it's also so simple that you can do this approach and I want to stress this. I'm not uh, trying to, to say that this is the way to do it. I think this is the way to do it when you have already a pretty stable uh, picture of the events uh, in established and good history books. I think this book could only be written because there are a number of uh, great history books on the Great War written in a, a sort of traditional manner. This is not an alternative way of writing history. It's a, a, a say complementary yeah. way of writing. It, it tries to complement uh, the, the many of the other books that are great books that have been written through the years. So, so it's not an alternative. It's a complementary version. And from all the tens, hundreds, of millions of people who were who were affected by the war, how did you choose the ones that you featured in the book? Well, I, I chose them from, from the angle that the book was going to, even though it was only 20 people, and 20 people, I can never say that, you know, mm. they are representative or something. It was some 63 million people in uniform yeah. and something like that. Uh, they can never be represent, representatives of anything but themselves. But I, would, I chose them from, from one simple criteria, uh, and that the book was going to show the multiplicity of war. Uh, how, and not, I'm not just saying, okay, let's not just have the Western Front, mm. but also the Eastern Front and the Balkans and Italy and Mesopotamia and Africa and so on. That multiplicity, but also the multiplicity that comes out of not just having military men, but also civilian. Not having, of course, not only men, but also women, and not all, always people in their early 20s. Most of them are early in the early 20s, of course, because mm. that was the generation. Uh, that, uh, that were in their prime and were called up. So, and also not just people who were enthusiastic, but also people who were very skeptical about it. My, my own small work I've been doing as a war correspondent myself has taught me, not that much, but has taught me that people react very, very differently in, in these types of situations. Some people really grow and enjoy it even. Other people, they loathe it from the beginning. They, they sort of get, get uh, ground down into the... They, they 
get crushed yeah. by it and they never recover. Some, are, some people bloom in it even. So, so the reactions of individuals are very, very different. And that was also something I wanted to, to have, the, to show how different people react to these type of events. And also, and that was another point, if, when you use people as examples in a grand narrative, you use them, uh, okay, here I want to have someone who is enthusiastic. Well, then I take her and I plunk her down in, in my grand narrative. But, but the interesting thing that if you follow people along, you will see that they're, of, they're often a sort of uh, development. They are changing themselves. So, so people can go from being quite enthusiastic and eventually wind up being part of the revolution, as there is a German sailor here in the, in, in the book, who starts out as a very, very strong nationalist and pro-war, and eventually takes part in the revolution that stops the war and, and ousts the, the Kaiser and so on. And just using people ex as examples tend to belittle them. Right. So I wanted to have their full story as far as possible in the book. Because often in, in, I guess, more conventional history books, you won't have someone changing their opinion halfway through. They'll, they'll be used for certain points. They are used for points. And they are used for points. Mm. Uh, and, and that is, that is a, a problem as I see it. Uh, one of the things that I, I, I tried to do in this book was uh, to, to take each of these individuals sort of seriously, trying to, by limiting the, the view from what they could possibly know on, on these single days, that, 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 that's the backbone of the narrative, uh, also makes them more understandable. I think when we, are, when we are looking upon the Great War, especially when it comes to, say, the, the, the outbreak of the war, much of it, of their reactions, are so foreign to us. They all seem so strange. I know I've been teaching First World War history, and, and my students have often reacted, they must have been mad, they must have been, you know, as they were silly or something, yeah. but they weren't mad, and they weren't. Uh, they were quite as intelligent as, as we were, as we are. So, so it's, it's trying to rescue them from from the, the sort of uh, the unbelief that comes over us when we when we see such an event as, as the First World War. Trying to get inside their minds and see how they work. Yes, and and in in a sort of honest way, taking them seriously. None of the people in, in the book were fools in, in any way. Some of the people reacted in ways that I really probably can understand closely how I myself would react or you would react. Others have reactions that are quite alien. We have this, uh, this English winner of the Victoria Cross who is a really gung-ho type and so on. But still trying to take them seriously, treat them as real people and not just as examples to be used. And so how did you research their stories? Well, it was, as I said, the, the tricky bit was not finding material, but finding uh, people that would sort of fit into the bill of, of, as I said, multiplicity. I wanted to have different experience, different attitude, different types of people, different countries, different fronts, and so on. And, uh, um, some, and it was also a, a matter of looking at the, the, the available material and saying, how good is it? How 
close can you get to this person? Uh, so, so it was also a choice, and there are always choices involved when you write history, about uh, having good source material. For instance, uh, one person that you can only find in, in the English-speaking uh, version of the book is Sarah McNaughton, a Scotswoman. And I jumped at her at once because she has written a book on her experiences, her early war experiences, that was pu actually published mm. during the war. But now there is also available her diary and some of her letters. And there is a... Uh, they don't really match totally. So, so you can see sort of where she... This is the official version, and then you have the, the private version. And sometimes they, they match, but sometimes they don't. Um, this was impossible, of course, with, with, with many of them. You, you, couldn't, you can't use several versions. Uh, but I, in some, uh, for instance, you have a, a Danish, a Dane, who was enrolled in the German army. I, I could see a bit of the, the same mechanism. I, I, of course, wanted to have source material, both that was sort of the official version, and also tried to find their own versions of it and see, because there are always differences. There's a lot about psychology, really, in the book. And yes. About the, you learn a lot about the way people perceive the world and the way they represent their views in different ways. Yes, the, yes there is. I, I think some of it is, is so, sort of common enough, common enough garden variety. <laughs> psychology, trying to understand people, but trying, as I said, trying to understand them from within uh, as far as that is possible, because, because we have the, 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 the limitations of the source material, of course. And do you feel that you've learned a lot about the Great War from writing this book? Well, I, I've been writing about shorter things about the Great War before this book, and I've also been teaching, uh, at, um, I'm a historian, um, uh, when I was at Uppsala University. I've been teaching it, so, so I'm pretty familiar with and I'm pretty familiar with the topic. Well, of course, a lot of the incidentals, for instance, like, uh, drugs during the First World War, uh, you know, the use of cocaine and, 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 and you know, what we now call recreational drugs. Uh, the use of drugs, uh, the, the, which was quite widespread, also sex, when you can get to it. And, and I was, you know, of course, like, oh, I must use that. When I found in one of the, uh, the Italian soldier, when he actually mentions masturbation. Of course, it's a phenomenon that must be enormously common, and no one ever talks about it. But he mentions it. And it's about venereal diseases, prostitution, and all these things that have been sort of put away, and, and they are hard to get hold of, but, but finding them and seeing these, how people, how people talked, uh, they didn't say at the front, they say at the front, as, as it was one word and yeah. so on. Uh, the, the, the changes in clothing, the, the changes in, in, in food, in lighting, all these things that, if you have the big picture of the war, and there are great books about that, they, they, these tiny details tend to slip away, but the, the, the details of everyday life and seen from these 20 people, they were um, 
they gave me a sort of a, a new understanding and new images in my head, how it looked. So. Um, and if, I know you can't do that, but if you could have met any of these people, is there anyone in particular you'd like to have met? Several of them, as I said, and I think that, that, that is probably a sort of deviation, produces a sort of deviation in the book. And, uh, as I choose these people, I, I found several of them interesting in their uh, contradictions. And all of them are, in some sense, contradictory. They are, are pulled by different impulses. Uh, this woman, Sarah McNaughton, who, who actually died. As a result of the war, she got very sick when she was in Georgia uh, and died here in London in 1916. She was obviously a very, very bright woman. I think there were things that we could impossibly see eye to eye to, but I would like to have discussed it because she had a, a very keen sense of her own limitations, of things that she didn't approve of, things that really confused her. And she was really tormented during her last uh, year in life by this. The same is, is this Dane, who I don't really know exactly what happened to him. Uh, he was missing in action in August on the Somme. Uh, he, he, by all accounts, he was dead, and I, I think I found the place where he was buried. But he was also having the, the, this contradiction in himself. The contradictory uh, part of it is interesting. He is attracted to war, but he is not a volunteer. He doesn't really want to go, and he wanted to end as quickly as possible. Please, can't it end? And he grabs on all rumors that, well, it will end in a couple of months, and it will end yeah. in August or something. So his, these uh, people who are pulled in two directions at the same time. I, I, feel, mm, I feel very sympathetic to that yeah. sort of reaction. Uh, so any of them would have been very interesting to me. I, I would love to, to have met any of them. I know I have met relatives to uh, some of them, uh, and, and this far the, the, the reactions have been positive. <laughs> For the people you've met, for the relatives, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I've heard of it. I, I, I met only one, and that is a, a relative to, to a person that you can only find in the Russian edition of this book, who was a, a, in, the, in, the, in the Imperial Army. And I met a, a relative, and, and they, she, uh, a woman, and she never met him. It was a granddaughter or something, but, but uh, she said that the, the, the family has approved, mm. and I will possibly get the material from his wife as well. I can expand it in some ways. No, anyone, I would have loved to met any one of them, but, but Sarah McNaughton and, and Christian Andreas and the, the, the Dane in the German army, they, they have these, uh, they are struggling with themselves, mm. trying to accommodate in this very strange uh, situation, and I can really find that interesting. That was Peter England. The Beauty and the Sorrow has recently been published by Profile Books. Now it's time for our historical trivia moment. Last week we told you about tall men in Prussia. This week it's smuggling. In 1762 in Falmouth, a two-week-long bazaar of oriental goods took place, with the luxury products on sale just arrived in the holds of three East India Company vessels from China. And everything, of course, was sold duty-free in an extraordinarily bold display of smuggled products. 
So that's quite a few weeks of fascinating historical facts that we've imparted to you, and yet we've received none in return. So if anyone would like to email in with further interesting historical facts, we'll gladly read them out here, if they're true, of course, and give you a name check. Email us, podcast at historyextra.com, with your facts. Next, Professor Michael Hunter's recent biography of Robert Boyle, the 17th century scientist, has just won the Samuel Pepys Award. This presented a good opportunity to find out more about Boyle from the man best placed to tell us more, so I caught up with Professor Hunter to talk Boyle. We're talking about Robert Boyle. Um, He lived from 1627 to 1691. He was one of the key figures of the scientific revolution of the 17th century. Can you give us an idea of, of what his key contributions were? What, what are the main things that we should remember him for? I think most important is that Boyle effectively invented the modern experimental method. It was Boyle, more than anyone, who thought that it was important to carry out controlled experiments, to record the findings in great detail, uh, if necessary, to repeat them, to record failed experiments when experiments failed, and so on, so that you built up a kind of body of data, experimental data about the workings of the natural world, which could be used as a basis for conclusions to be drawn. Um, so, so I think that more than anything, he is a great experimenter, and that is his chief claim to fame. But he wasn't a kind of aimless experimenter because he did have um, an agenda, which was to prove that the world worked according to mechanical principles rather than according to the more sort of qualitative principles of previous theories like those of Aristotle, which were still really the predominant way of understanding the natural world up until Boyle's time. And so he really wanted to use his experimental findings to prove that the world could best be understood according to mechanical principles rather than by any other means. And so some of the experiments on which he laid most greatest stress um, were ones which he believed did actually vindicate a mechanical view of nature, particularly an experiment that he did in um, the 1650s on nitre, saltpeter, where he was able to, um, to, as it were, take the component parts of a chemical composition um, apart and then recombine them. And he believed that that showed that, that, I mean, that was as close as you could get to a proof of the chemical structure of matter. Okay, so where did he where did he get the idea for experiments from? Was he working, you know, completely on his own here, or was he building off a, a corpus of knowledge of people trying experiments before him? There were traditions of experiments, particularly in chemistry. Um, in practical chemistry, people had been doing experiments because they were trying to produce um, substances which they could um, sell or use as medications, etc. But in terms of a kind of theoretical background, the person to whom he owes most is um, the English um, natural philosopher Francis Bacon, who had laid out a a kind of program for investigating nature empirically and inductively um, through his writings and had begun to do a bit of such work, but had never developed it in the systematic way that Boyle did. Mm. So I think more than any, more than anyone, Bacon is, is is his inspiration. As far as the mechanical philosophy is concerned, he's the heir to the to the pioneers of putting forward mechanical explanations, such as uh, Rene Descartes and Pierre Gassendi Gassendi in France. Um, so he's 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 not a, a, a pioneer of, of of putting forward mechanical explanations, but I think he does take the mechanical philosophy to a new level by offering this empirical vindication of it, which. Had, hadn't been there before. 
sorry, I never really finished the question of why he was important. Oh. <laughs> um, and I mean, in, in a sense, because you see, I think that that's his chief claim to fame as a scientist, but I think that, that he is also quite a significant writer on the theory of science, on sort of scientific epistemology, trying, thinking through um, what t- types of information, what types of proof um, are reliable, what kinds of information uh, um, we, we can trust. And a lot of this is relates to his views on the relationship between science, God and nature or science and religion, because he is, is constantly placing our knowledge about the natural world in the context of our knowledge of God and his and his plans and his uh, design for the universe. Um, but as I say, in the course of expounding his ideas on these sorts of areas, in these sorts of areas, I think he um, was came up with more sophisticated ideas about the nature of our knowledge about the natural world than many of his contemporaries. And, the, I mean, the title of your book, Boyle Between God and Science, I suppose, alludes to that, uh, that, that debate he was having with himself about that. So was, was it, did, did he find it difficult to reconcile religion and science, or, or is, that, is that moving it too far from, from what he was thinking about? I deliberately chose the word between because that doesn't have any sense of conflict, which many people have read into it. Um, but Boyle, I, I think, believes there is no conflict whatsoever between God and science. Uh, but he he himself, as it were, is a sort of in, in, a, a, a figure who um, elucidates both by his investigations of the of the natural world. So Boyle is 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 literally between because that his is where he. He's conscious that he's located. I don't think he has any sense that the study of the natural world could ever threaten um, a belief in God. In fact, on the contrary, he believed that if you properly understood the natural world, it could only lead you to a belief in God. He believes that alternative non-theistic views of nature are implausible because he believes that the complexity of the world could only be explained by an intelligent designer. And he believes that the more you know about it, the more you will be convinced of that so um so so Boyle you know contrary to to, to modern presumptions uh Boyle and like many of his contemporaries has no sense of 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 a of a a conflict between between science and religion um he's he's aware of a threat to Christianity um and and he is aware that that threat may be based on an imperfect sort of ignorant view of the natural world but he believes that by educating people in their understanding of nature they will be led towards um an appreciation of God, I mean that's a, this. It makes it sound as if I'm a sort of apologist myself, but I'm, I'm not. It's, I'm just giving doing justice to Boyle's own views because I think he is absolutely convinced that there is a complete harmony between a proper understanding of the natural world and a belief in God. And how widely shared were those views amongst his his fellow? Um, uh, do we call them scientists at this point, or do you call them natural philosophers? Which, which is, what's the term that we? I, I, personally, I, I use the ter- I use the terms as synonyms because I, I, we know what we're talking about. I mean, it's true that um, people who studied nature in the 17th century are not identical with um, scientists in the 20th century. But I think we know. I think they're sufficiently close for us to know what we mean. And it, and it's often people have often used the term natural philosopher so that they can't be accused of being anachronistic. But 
in fact, I think it's better just to sort of say at the outset, obviously, there are differences between those who studied nature in the 20, 17th century and those who studied it in the 21st. Um, and th th that's to be taken into account when I use a modern, a modern term like scientist. And yet, I think we're fairly clear that we know what we mean. So, after that um, preliminary, it, it's actually very difficult to find um, people who had a hands-on approach to nature like Boyle who aren't quite uh, fairly religious. There aren't people out there who are, um, who, you know, who are actively involved in the study of nature, who are aggressively anti-Christian. There, of course, are thinkers who are, who are one of whom did have um, some interest in understanding the natural world, and this is Thomas Hobbes. And I think Hobbes, more than anyone, exemplifies the anxieties that people felt about um, how attitudes to the world in general and to man's place in it um, could lead in, a, in an atheistic direction, although I think Hobbes himself would have claimed that he, he was not an atheist, uh, and I don't think there's any reason to believe that, that, that he was. But people could see that Hobbes's view of the world, which is a mechanical, a completely mechanical view, a sort of material, completely materialistic view, um, and his view of how man fits into that is moving in a direction in which you have a plausible view of the world and man's place in it from which God could be removed. I mean, Hobbes doesn't remove him himself. He believes in a corporeal God. But um, it, it, many could see that, that you, you know, it was a fairly short step in a Hobbesian universe to dispensing with God altogether and believing in a universe that worked just by on its own and human institutions which which worked according to um, purely human sanctions. So that's where the, the threat is, is coming from. And so that's why Boyle was, was keen to um, disagree with Hobbes's explanations of many of the um, of the of the natural phenomena that, that Boyle brought to light through his experiments. Um, he had a spat with Hobbes um, in the early 1660s concerning his findings about the nature of the air. And then there was a further, um, he, he published a further attack on Hobbes a, a decade later in the early 1670s. And I think he, and he's quite explicit that the reason for this is because he knows that, um, that Hobbes's ideas are influential and he thinks they're pernicious to religion. Um, and that's why he is anxious to, to show that Hobbes's um, supposed explanations of natural phenomena aren't very convincing either. So, so I think, uh, you know, that, that, that it, it's Hobbes and, and the impact of thinkers like Hobbes that is where the threat is coming from. So, but, but ironically, you know, it's, it's not coming from, you know, in a sense, science is lined up on, on, on the orthodox side in, the, in, in this debate. And of course, after Boyle's death, he founded in his will um, a series of lectures, the Boyle lectures, which were, were intended to defend Christianity against um, irreligious threats um, and various lecturers including um, Richard Bentley who later became Master of Trinity College Cambridge and Samuel Clark who was an, a, a, a theologian of the period and others um, used this as a platform to put forward a, 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 a theistic view, view of things against the threat that they saw from Hobbes's followers and those whom they called atheists. Okay, so that's um 
covered one of the possible contradictions in Boyle's life. The, the other one um, that, that comes through from your book is, is, is the question of alchemy. He's, he's, he, he's, he's very interested in alchemy, which seems to be a bit of, a, a bit of an issue in terms of, of seeing him as a, a man on the cusp of modern science, doesn't it? Or am I overstating that case? Um, yeah, I think al- alchemy is a difficult issue. Um, I mean, there's a sense in which alchemy is um, part of, of the, the sort of hands-on experimental tradition that Boyle was indebted to in forming the modern experimental method in science. Um, so alchemists were among those from whom he learned in a practical way. Um, but he also clearly believed that the the sort of the, the the elite of alchemists had insights into the structure of the of of of, of matter and the structure of the universe which he would like to uh, find out and at this point we do seem to sort of slide into a, into an area where he is um getting involved in essentially magical ideas rather than me- mechanistic ones and he himself is actually rather uncomfortable about this and as, I, as I've shown in my um, work on Boyle and, and alchemy, um, Boyle is worried that insofar as alchemy may contain secrets about the universe, which you find out by, you, you find out almost by g- gaining a kind of insight that not everyone can have, that is only available to, to a kind of elite of people with special knowledge, that there could be something slightly dangerous about this because it might be a kind of temptation from the devil rather than a gift given you by God. So uh, here we come, this is, this is where we do come to aspects of Boyle's religious life, which aren't quite sort of serene and straightforward as the sort of view of the harmony of science and religion might make it seem. Because I think he did have a quite troubled spiritual life. I think he believes that um, God is quite, you know, God is, God is a demanding uh, master to, 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 um, to, to, to work for. And that believers are constantly being placed under temptation by um, the devil and that, you know, part of the way in which you show your spiritual worth and your moral fibre is by resisting these temptations. And it does seem, from an interview he had with a bishop who he consulted about such matters, that he was worried that the alchemical inquiries that he was was engaged in might be leading him in a dangerous direction as far as his spiritual life was concerned quite how much this affected how far he went down that route of course is is hard to judge because we only have these hints of his doubts um and he does seem to have indulged in quite a lot of alchemy but there you know it it is clearly a, a, a slightly complicated picture but more for moral reasons than straightforward epistemological ones i mean i think he believed that the world was a very complex place even if you explain the world even if the world could be explained mechanically you had to have a very sophisticated and subtle version of the mechanical philosophy which could include insights that derive from alchemy to make sense of of natural phenomena. Um, so in that sense, he thought that alchemy um, could could be a useful part of a knowledge of nature. But insofar as he then draws back, it's because of the sort of moral dangers of in being involved in areas of, of, of knowledge which were illicit um, rather than untrue. And that, that, that there are undoubted complications there. Okay. Um, 
he he lived in interesting times, didn't he? Both scientifically, with all the all the happenings that were going on in the seventeenth century, the foundation of the Royal Society in sixteen sixty, but but also politically with the the Civil War, um, uh, the Restoration, and, and the sixteen eighty eight um, revolution. He would have seen all those. Did did those latter events pass him by? Was he too engaged with his with his uh, with his philosophy and his writings to, to take much interest in them, or did, did he actually get involved in those uh, those underlying political events? He's actually a surprisingly a well, not surprisingly, he is a rather apolitical figure. Many of his contemporaries were much more directly involved in these events than he was. Boyle tends to stay on the sidelines in in these great events. Um, in the aftermath of the Civil War, he seems to have been really surprisingly uninterested in um, in the events going on around him. I mean, obviously, he suffered some inconvenience from some of the post-revolutionary circumstances in which he found himself um, in terms just of having to sort of avoid people affiliated with either side when you were traveling and, uh, you know, because you might actually get um, uh, sort of held up and, and have all your possessions taken from you and that sort of thing if you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I think also um, ta- taxation and things like that are problematic to him. But he, he really seems surprisingly uninterested in that. And um, insofar as people have tried to... To, to place sort of strong political affiliations on Boyle, it, it doesn't work. I mean, they, sl- they slip off because that's not the sort of person he was. He seems to have been really surprisingly uninterested in, in, in these events, and most of the effects that they had on him, as I say, were these sort of incidental side effects rather than a case of direct involvement on, on his part. So, um, so, so I mean, in the, so in the interregnum, he actually avoids direct affiliation with the regime, say, of Cromwell. I mean, he, he, he but, but on the other hand, he equally isn't, isn't because uh, he was at Oxford um, in the 1650s. And we have some interesting reminiscences of him at this time, which I think are revealing from this point of view. And on the one hand, he didn't have, he, he avoided close affiliation with, with, with the supporters of Cromwell who were running the university at that point. But equally, he avoided close association with the sort of diehard Anglicans who were holding secret meetings and things like that. He deliberately seems to have sort of kept an intermediate position. And then after the restoration, he's very happy to um, go along with the status quo and be associated with the regime. And in fact, that is the point at which he comes closest to having some sort of political role because he's involved in certain government initiatives for colonial affairs and things like that. But he doesn't seem to enjoy it much. Um, he finds p- politics too sort of, um, there's too much infighting and selfishness for him. And so he, he, he really withdraws from that, that fairly quickly because after all, he, he effectively had a, a, a life's work in, in the investigation of the natural world to which he was that by that time devoted. And so, and so much the same state of affairs continues thereafter that he has really very little contact with politics all through the restoration period. But um, he is, and he, we, we don't know his views on the Catholicizing regime of James II, but one presumes that he probably disapproved because he does seem to have been quite keen on the glorious revolution in 1688. But it's all a fair, it's all fairly peripheral um, to his his main life and thought. And you have to work quite hard to find out the hints that I've just collected together in, in that commentary I've just given you. Okay. Um, 
do, where, do, where do we find his his sort of early influences? Why did he become the the experimenter, the natural philosopher that he was? Because he he, he went to Eton, didn't he? And he went on a on a grand tour. So he, he seems to be doing all the sort of things that you might expect of a of a of a young gentleman at the time. Was there anything that particularly marked him out as as, a, as someone who'd be ploughing a different path? That's an interesting question on which I. Um, have quite st- strong views. Um, I think so, get, just working through, I mean, he came from a very privileged background. His father was the so-called Great Earl of Cork, one of the uh, one of the most um, successful adventurers in Elizabethan and Jacobean Ireland, and who, he made a lot of money out of um, the redistrib- redistribution of land for which he was responsible in the late Elizabethan and Jacobean period and became very rich indeed. So Boyle and all of his other um, his brothers and sisters uh, got a very good uh, um, endowment from, from from his father. So Boyle was effectively a sort of millionaire by inheritance and was able to just do what he liked. And I think actually that it was quite a powerful influence on him, although, of course, there's no reason why he need have done anything worthwhile at all. You, you know, he basically had an income for life and 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 was brought up in very opulent circumstances and that could just have le- led him to, uh, to, to to the life of a waster um, sort of hunting, shooting and fishing uh, like many of his contemporaries. Um, then he, th- at Eton I think he was quite, a, 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 or my reading is that at Eton he was quite a difficult boy um, and there wasn't much sign of, 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 of great things to come. Um, then he goes on, the, on, on he, he went on the Grand Tour and um, he he had he 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 wrote an autobiography which covers much of that um, th- those travels uh, as well as his childhood and he reports a conversion experience at that time but that initially um, he returned to England. Um, just in the aftermath of the Civil War and started writing treatises not on science at all but on moral improvement um, a, a sort of try, trying to instill um, moral superior moral principles in his in, in, in his aristocratic peers as far as far, uh, you know there are really a large body of writings and also there are uh, devotional writings and things like that he thought he might be a religious writer as well my theory is that he had a, almost a, 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 a sort of another conversion experience. You know, he had this um, religious conversion in Switzerland, he says, in his autobiography. But I believe that at about the time he wrote the autobiography, shortly after that, he had a conversion experience effectively to science. And the, the, the kind of books that he writes changes almost overnight. And it's not well. The the reasons for it are. I mean, it's it's easier to describe the, the this sudden change than to account for it. What happens is that having written these really rather turgid religious and moral tracts, and also some slightly livelier um, quasi-religious writings inspired by the romance form that he had come across during his continental travels, um, he, he. But but all of these also are just putting across moral messages in a slightly more um, in way in literary terms but, but you know the, the, the message is the same but suddenly he discovers the study of nature and start and, and builds a labor get, builds a laboratory and starts doing experiments um, and starts to become fascinated by the, the 
understanding nature in detail and um, and becomes fascinated by the new philosophies that are, are, are around, but not partly of the chemists, partly of the mechanical philosophers like Descartes and partly authors like Bacon. And um, it, it seems as if the reason for this is that he, at that point, became acutely aware of the dangers of the danger of the threat of, of, of irreligion. This is slightly before Hobbes, because Hobbes had had predecessors who had seemed to threaten Christianity, such as Italian thinkers from the 16th century like Machiavelli and Pietro Pomponazzi, um, who people suspected of, of sort of damaging the Christianity in the way that Hobbes did on a larger scale in, Hob in Boyle's time. So the initial awareness of this threat precedes Hobbes, but it's rather similar to the threat that he perceived from Hobbes later. And in a sense, the, the arrival of Hobbes um, in the 1650s, I mean, the, the arrival of Hobbes's ideas, as represented particularly by his book, Leviathan of 1651, um, all of this, as it were, reinforced Boyle's anxiety about the threat to Christianity, which he believed that the study of nature was the best defense against. And so, so it, it does seem to be in 1649, that he um, he he had had li li literally had this sort of conversion experience from moralizing uh, it, 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 to, in a in a sort of more general philosophical way to the study of nature, um, and it does seem to be because of this, this 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 awareness of a threat to Christianity, which he thought that science could could protect against. That that he that that his his in in a sense his whole sort of purpose in life changed at that particular moment, and this can be documented from. From, from his extensive surviving archive. Okay, um, last question, just to wrap things up. So you've, you've written this award-winning biography of him. You've, you've edited um, most of his, his works. Therefore, you know a lot more about him than me. So what's the obvious question that I should have asked you? Is there, some, is there something that we've, we've missed out here that I should have, uh, that I should have been uh, pressing you on? My uh, encounter with Boyle started by cataloguing his archive. There's a huge Boyle archive that has been at the Royal Society of London since the um, late 18th century, which had never been catalogued. And so, in the in in the in the 1980s, I um, catalogued that, um, and really everything grew from that. And I also found some extraordinary personal documents which revealed the, the, the extent to which Boyle had a kind of tortured spiritual life, which is partly um, reflected in his, in his attitude to alchemy and magic, but is also reflected in a more general concern about the, the, the sort of extent to which he is serving God in the way that in the way that he should he also clearly suffered quite severe religious doubts um, and things like that so he has a, a, a difficult religious life and in fact in I, uh, in one of the papers that I wrote when I first started writing about Boyle and of course this also is all re 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 recapitulated um, in the in the biography um, I think that in in the same way that he, he in his spiritual life he examined his conscience and was constantly sort of probing and trying to make sure that he got the right answer on moral issues. I think that his experimental policy could even could, could possibly be seen as a kind of um, extension of that from his, his 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 inner psyche to the natural world. In fact, there's one comment that he made made in an interview with with a bishop, Bishop Burnett, who 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 took down some notes 
for a biography of him, um, in which he said that he, he made conscience of great exactness in experiments, which seems to me to, in a sense, to sort of prove the causal link between his spiritual life and his, his, his activity in studying the natural world. So I think I would like to think that it was discovering this sort of, um, this, this sort of complex, um, tortured Boyle that ha has been my contribution to, to Boyle's studies. Um, and, and in a sense, I think it, it, in many ways it's made him a more interesting and perhaps believable person in a 21st century context than the rather serene lay saint who dominated views of Boyle ever since the 18th century when um, the previous edition of Boyle had come out. So, so that, is, as I say, is, is, is what I would see as, as my, um, significant, <laughs> my significant contribution. Um, and then, but that needed to be put in the broader context of trying to understand him as a whole. You know, I published a, a, a volume of uh, collecting together a, a series of essays I'd written on Boyle in 2000 called Robert Boyle's Scrupulosity in Science. And in a sense, that is my sort of, a re, that's my reinterpretation of Boyle. But the biography then takes that and puts it in the context of his contribution to to science and to the understanding of the natural world and his role in 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 the life of his day which um although he has no political role he is quite active as a philanthropist as an encourager of um missionary work in the in 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 in, in, in the american colonies and in the far east and things like that so he does have quite a public role outside science in terms of being a kind of pious and public spirited um layman so all of that is there in the biography, and I'm and I'm hoping that it all fits together to give a convincing view of of, of him as a whole. So I, I think I think that probably um, more or less covers everything that um, that I feel that I've been I achieved on Boyle over over the last. I mean, it was really a sort of quarter of a century I was working with Boyle. I've now faced life after Boyle more, more or less, although I'm still writing the odd paper because people still want me to contribute to conferences and things. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter, because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100-plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Michael Hunter is Emeritus Professor of History at Birkbeck College, London. His biography, Boyle Between God and Science, is published now by Yale University Press. If you're interested in some of those political and religious debates that Boyle didn't get overly involved in, our current issue includes a feature on Puritan attitudes to Christmas in the Civil War. And if you want to know more about Thomas Hobbes, I interviewed Professor Justin Champion about him in our 22 July 2011 podcast, which you can download still for free. That's all for this week's podcast. Please join us next time when we'll be talking about the role of religion in war and female voters in the 1930s. BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by the entertaining Dave Gibson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>